0: So one thing is that through all my research, I was going to be going down that burr route, right? Buy, renovate, refinance, repeat, right? It was when I met Neil and went to his boot camp that I really learned about how incredible multifamily was. So once I got over the fear of being on a team and realized the magic formulas of multifamily, that it's the asset Value is based on the cap rate of the city and the income level that the net operating income that you're able to produce. So it's a controllable thing. You don't completely control the cap rate, but you control the income. Whereas with single family, you have no control at all over the value of your building. Your the value of your house is like, well, it's kind of based on what your neighbor down the street, you know, what they're sold for. As a data person, I just love that that I can actually have an impact and add value and increase the value of my asset. Over a two-year time, I can increase the value by a million dollars easily just by raising rents and you know adding value to the asset.
1: This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show. With Sean Pan. Today we have Anna Myers. Anna is the Vice President of Grow Capitus, an investment company based in the Bay Area. In this episode, Anna will talk about her experiences with syndicating and investing in multifamily assets, and will tell us how to use data to make the best investment decisions. If you're new to this podcast, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday and release the show notes on our site, everythingri.com slash podcast. By the way, if you need help financing your next real estate project, check out Conventus Lending. Conventist is the best hard money lender with amazing rates and incredible service. I've used them for years and they've always been incredibly easy to work with. If you need a hard money loan, contact me at sean at everythingrei.com to get $1,000 off of your processing fee. And if you want to know the secrets of how investors in the Bay Area are making huge profits in one of the most expensive markets in the world, download the free Ultimate Bay Area Investing Handbook on our website, everythingrei.com. Enjoy. All right, Anna, thank you so much for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and tell us what you do.
0: Thanks, Sean. Glad to be here with you. My name is Anna Myers. I am a professional plate spinner. I am in the San Francisco Bay Area and I have the superpower of being able to spin lots of plates that have both data and people on them. So yeah, I'm a, what you would call a a full-time syndicator and that's what it takes.
1: That's exciting. Let's talk about the different plates that you spin.
0: Sure. So I work at GrowCapitus, which is an investment firm in the San Francisco Bay Area. I am the vice president. I have a lot of different hats I wear to, to spin those different plates. My business partner is Neil Bawa. We both come from a technology background. So we, we like to say that we're basically a technology company that's masquerading as a real estate company because we both are complete data nerds and process geeks. So the way we run our business, the way we select our properties, the way we manage our properties, it's all about data and systems and processes. And that's what really makes our hearts sing.
1: Yeah. And for anyone who's listening, and if you haven't a chance to go ahead and check out episode number 69, where I had Neil on the show, where we talked about how to find great markets to invest in using data. And if you live in the Bay Area and once this whole, you know, COVID situation Opens up again, then hopefully Neil will continue having his meetup groups over in Fremont, where you can listen to his presentations in person.
0: Yep, we have a few, like three or four, in the Bay Area when we're you know when we're not in COVID times. And in the meantime, we do a lot of stuff online. So we do quite a few virtual, you know, we do a lot of webinars, and you know, we've been on Zoom for a long time. Now we're doing a lot of town halls. So we basically have brought it online to continue having the conversations.
1: And if people want to find out more about that, where can they go to? Uh, check out those town halls and those Zoom meetups.
0: Sure. So that is on the sister side of our business, which is multifamily U, our multifamily university, and that's multifamily, the letter U, dot com, and that's our education portal. And weekly, we put out a lot of content, whether it's us Neil or Anna speaking. Or we have the specific guests that we bring on to speak about syndication. There's lawyers and uh, lenders and lots of different people that come on. And then the town halls we have that are very honest conversations about what's happening in the world right now related to real estate and corona. We're, we're known for, for keeping things real, the good, the bad, the ugly. And people give us a lot of good feedback. Because of that, we're very driven to deliver high quality content. There's really, we're not about pitching things. There's very low pitch. There's no upsell necessarily in our educational content.
1: Right. And yeah, I've been to quite a few of these meetups and they've always been super great, just full of information. And like you said, very little pitching.
0: Yeah, very little. I mean, we do, if people want to know about our projects. We do talk about our projects a little bit because we've got, you know, and we talk about our boot camp a little bit, which we think is phenomenal. We just finished a, a virtual, our virtual camp. For June, and that was a tremendous experience.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I took that live version of that, I think, two years ago, and it was amazing. Basically, everything you need to know about investing in multifamily commercial in like one afternoon.
0: Yeah, well, and this keeps evolving, as you can imagine. We just delivered, uh, I think it was 20 hours of content over two weeks to 65 very engaged um, investors all over the nation with lots of interactive discussions and speaking and breakout rooms for labs, uh, I think it was a great virtual experience.
1: Yes. So Anna, what's your background and how did you even get into commercial multifamily real estate investing?
0: Well, I grew up in Southern California. My grandfather was a commercial real estate entrepreneur. I was the youngest grandkid and my dad's an architect. So my, my whole family basically, you know, was in commercial real estate, but I personally did not get involved in commercial real in professional real estate when I was a kid or as a teenager, because all my cousins being the youngest grandchild like they already had all the jobs at the, you know, the real estate office and that type of thing. So I was actually very involved in stage acting in Los Angeles and was going to be a stage actress. But then I had a kid. So as a teenager, I was a single parent and had a baby. And that drove me to pursue one of my other passions, which is problem solving. And so I became a computer programmer so that I could get make a decent hourly wage, actually very good at that time, and afford to, you know, pay for rent and diapers and you know put myself through school. So that's how I ended up in the tech world and I had a pretty long career in the tech world about 18 years and then I pivoted, pretty major pivot back to the art side of myself when the tech industry crashed in 2000. I don't know if any of you remember that. Sean doesn't remember it. I don't know if he was alive then. But it was, you know, it was a big deal, you know, and my husband at that time I was married and had another child and So it hit our household very hard because we were both in the tech industry. So I pivoted. And what I did is I opened a photography studio in the San Francisco Bay Area. So I ran a business and was very successful, learned in the process of having a very successful entrepreneurial business that taxes will eat you alive. No matter how hard you work, you just can't seem to get beyond it. So I was trying to figure out how to deal with that. And that's when I came back to real estate. And said, ah, I need to, you know, duh, I need to invest in real estate and buy some single families so I have the depreciation. And so that's what I did to manage my taxes better as a small business owner. And in the process of doing that, realized that I had a scalability issue in general in my life. That as a photographer, it is a, it's the type of job that you basically own the job. And you can't scale unless you want to become a manager of photographers, which I didn't want to become. So... I made a five-year plan and realized that I needed to get into a scalable job. My goal is to be a digital nomad. So you can't really be that as a photographer. So I realized, you know, my husband was still in the tech world. So, you know, he was set for that. So I planned to become a full-time real estate investor in five years. And I went about executing that, that plan. Again, it was kind of going back to my family roots, right? My whole family's in real estate. So it wasn't such an odd thing. But I spent a lot of time educating myself, going to classes, uh, lots of podcasts and just real lots of deep dives, and then met Neil actually at a boot camp. It was a virtual boot camp in February of 2018. Met him there, and he was obviously he was teaching, and started interacting. He asked for people to volunteer and write a deal analyzer, and I was one of the people that volunteered. He told him about my background as you know I used to manage programming groups, and so he said, "Great, you know you're my lead for the deal analyzer." So that was a surprise, welcome surprise, I guess. And so I started managing this group of volunteers, and we managed to get the uh, deal analyzer together. In the process, I was interacting with Neil quite a bit, and he asked me to start working for him as an underwriter, a volunteer. It was all volunteer, and so I was still running my studio. And in the pro- then along the lines, he started to see the various skill set I had. I started to add more value to his business. And after about nine months of volunteering for him, I started, became a partner in the business and am now the vice president of the company. So adding value.
1: That's an amazing story. So for anyone listening that wants to be in your position in your future, what would you recommend for them?
0: Well, a few things. I mean, one, I was in a position to volunteer and add value to Neil's business because I had set my life up so that I could do that. So I was able to scale back my studio. I had already scaled it back. So I was only working in the studio like three days a week. So I had four days a week that I could dedicate to pursuing real estate. My cost of living was very low. So all my bills were covered. So if I was working like a five, you know, five day a week job and you know, had you know, a lot of family responsibilities, et cetera, I wouldn't have been able to take up that responsibility. So I had created the space in my life and was working so hard and i think that's when it all just kind of came together but it didn't happen without me creating space if that makes sense
1: yeah it makes sense
0: so when you want to do something that's i would say that you have to put your platform together so that you can be successful and it's a financial platform it's a time platform it's a mental platform it's all of the things that that together then when you commit yourself to it you allow yourself you enable yourself to be successful
1: mm-hmm. And how long was it since you decided that you want to get into commercial real estate and you started doing those like reading books and listening to podcasts? And
0: It was four years. I set a five-year plan and I closed my studio in four years. So I exited a year early. Oh, very nice. And understand, I mean, I set a five-year plan because I'm a, an ageable person with a lot of financial responsibilities, you know, children, grandchildren, husband, house, you know, so I couldn't just spin on a dime. You know, some people might have less responsibilities and they can do a two year, you know, type thing. Yeah. Yeah. So it took me four years.
1: That's cool. You had the foresight. And I think a lot of people who get into this business are very kind of short sighted and they think that all this can happen within one year. I think it was cool that you gave yourself those five years to succeed in the business and really learn for you go all in.
0: Yeah. And wind down my other business too. I mean, I love photography. I had a fabulous business, but as an adult who has children and responsibilities, you have to be responsible in how you execute in life, you know, just because you want something doesn't mean you can get it overnight. And I think it's that much more satisfying when you do get it. And so now as a full-time real estate investor, I can be a digital nomad. And my husband and I are actually hitting the road in August.
1: Oh, congratulations. Where are you guys going?
0: Well, because of Corona, we're going to hunker down at my sister's for a few months because, you know, it's not very fun to be living in different cities when everybody's sheltering in place, right? But conceptually, we'll still be on the road and then we'll start making our way across the United States and living in whatever city we want to live in.
1: It's interesting. I actually had a guest on my show earlier this morning and we were talking about the places where Airbnb is doing the best and it's not those fancy cities. It's Probably somewhere within drivable distance from major metros because they just need to have their house.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have an Airbnb in Charleston, South Carolina, and it's been a very popular. Of course, I lost all my business when Corona first hit, $40,000 of reservations canceled. But now that it, South Carolina opened back up and Charleston's a very popular city, so I'm completely booked to the gills now. So people definitely are wanting to get out.
1: Awesome. And yeah, if you're interested in digital nomad stuff, go check out my girlfriend's website, digitalnomadquest.com. Nice. She left for two years. She went to like Thailand and like Asia and Europe and just worked remotely for two years.
0: That's cool. Well, we're starting out inside the U.S. and then eventually we'll hit outside
1: of the U.S. Nice. So once you started working with Neil, what were some of the things that he had you doing?
0: Uh, well, I, when I first started, I was underwriting multifamilies. We had a subscription to CoStar. So I was doing a lot of CoStar. I love CoStar, by the way. We don't currently have a subscription. But it is a fabulous mountain of gold of data. And that's how I looked at it. So I was mining CoStar for data in lots of different ways, not just looking for deals. But I love looking at markets. And with CoStar research, you can do so, find out so much. So yeah, a lot of, of data analysis of markets and then analyzing small multis and medium-sized multifamilies. That's what I was doing at first.
1: So you know how most people who want to get in the business, they start out by listening to podcasts and reading books. I'm sure there's a difference between everything you learn on those platforms versus doing it in person. What are some of the differences that you found from doing it yourself?
0: You mean between the differences between just learning from a podcast and actually doing the work with a mentor?
1: Yeah, I mean, because I'm sure there's some things that you don't even know about and then you do it. You're like, oh, I know about this.
0: So one thing is that, through all my research I have to I was gonna be going down that that burr route right the BRR the buy rehab buy renovate refinance repeat right the burr, right yeah and you know my husband would get 10 houses I would get 10 houses and then we you know that whole like thing right so I was going down that route It was when I met Neil and went to his boot camp that I really learned about how incredible multifamily was and got over my fear of being of being a team member on a group that's buying property. I, you know, my husband and I just wanted to do it on our own. And there's this fear of being on a team because multifamily is a team sport, right? So once I got over the fear of being on a team and realized the magic formulas of multifamily, that it's the asset value is based on the cap rate of the city and the income level, that the net operating income that you're able to produce. So it's a controllable thing. You don't completely control the, you don't control the cap rate, but you control the income. Whereas with single family, you have no control at all over the value of your building. you the value of your house is like, well, it's kind of based on what your neighbors down the street was, you know, what they're sold for. And once I, as a data person, I just love that, that I can actually have an impact and add value and increase the value of my asset Over a two year time, I can increase the value by a million dollars easily just by raising rents and uh, you know adding value to the asset. So that was one of the big things. And then I really dove in deep with Neil. A lot of the podcasts I was listening to at at that time were really focused, you know, prior to going to Neil's boot camp, were really focused on that Burr strategy and that, you know, not as much on the commercial. I think there's a ton of content out there now about you know multifamily and syndications. So that's been different. And then the other thing that gave me such an incredible amount of education was CoStar and the ability to interact with that type that quality of data. That was a huge learning experience. And then I would also say having a mentor is a big game changer. It accelerated me tremendously. I personally couldn't ask for a better mentor than Neil Bawa. I mean he's a phenomenal human being, as well as just a brilliant individual. So I feel very fortunate that somehow he connected with me and our worlds kind of collided. And now we're on this path together. And I have wasted no time about it. I realized the opportunity I had, and I just jumped all in. So I would say a mentor is definitely a great thing if you can get one. But in order to get one, you have to figure out how to add value. Again, I literally volunteered for nine months And I probably was, I was easily putting in 40 hours a week, if not more for those nine months. And before I ever became eligible or even because I was gaining so much knowledge, but that's how I got to be in the position where he asked me to partner with him.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, Neil is an amazing individual and he knows his stuff. So it's great that you're able to provide value and then receive some mentorship as well. Yeah.
0: And even if that hadn't happened, that those nine months were so golden, right? Like, that was my pay. It was just so much to learn.
1: Exactly. And let's imagine you try doing this on your own. What are some of the pitfalls that you think you would have fallen into, if not for Neil's guidance?
0: Oh, well, you know, first of all, I wouldn't have had... Let's assume if I hadn't have taken his class, I hadn't run into him, I would not know where to invest, which is one of the biggest things to understand. Like, let's assume that somehow I found out about multifamily, and I realized commercial real estate was, you know... Shazam, it's where I want to be. I still wouldn't know where to invest and that's been a big thing for me. I live in California, born and Bred in California. I do not invest in California, never have because you know multiple reasons. it's just not a business friendly state for landlords. So my whole investing career, I've always been looking for what where should I invest and how do I know what the best city is. I've had so many spreadsheets that are dedicated to that, you know, subscribe to various things to try and figure it out. So Neil's methodologies related to how to pick cities and how to pick micro neighborhoods then within those cities really was, it was a super game changer for me. And I know everybody that takes the free course, basically guys is completely free. That's the location magic, 90 minutes of free education. It will completely change the way you invest and help make sure that you're making better decisions that will lead to, Uh, better returns, because you're in markets that are going to have more cushion, they have better fundamentals, so you'll have more cushion to survive things like corona, or any other black swan that happens to come your way.
1: Yeah, and for those of you who want to listen to that, we actually touched upon how to determine the best locations and markets to invest in based on data on episode 69 with Neil Bawa. Yeah. And for all those people who are too lazy to go back and listen to it, do you want to kind of give like a high level overview of what Neil kind of looks for in a market to invest in?
0: Sure. And I will tell you that we actually, we do exactly what he talks about. He doesn't just talk about it and then we don't follow it. We follow it for all of our stuff. So I am the person that looks at the deals. So when somebody brings us a deal to grow capitalist, they might say like, I've got this great deal. It's you know, 10% cash on cash. I said, I don't want to hear anything about the returns. Just send me the address. I don't want to see your model. Just send me the address. And from that address, that's what I'm going to look at the address. And I'm going to look up the basic things that we're looking for. First, I'm going to look at the market. And we're looking for very specific uh, Goldilocks zones. I'm not going to go into the details here because Neil's already gone into it. And you all need to go back and listen to it. He used the Goldilocks zone for jobs. So we're looking for metros that have growth in jobs. We're looking for a Goldilocks zone on population growth we're looking for specific crime information about the city, about whether it's where it's trending. And then like at the lower level, we're looking at the hyper focused neighborhood. And I'm talking about the neighborhood, like within three blocks. And in that what we're looking for, and I'm going to talk about, you know, how I do it because I know there's what he teaches and, but everything I do basically falls within. I'm looking for median household income in that neighborhood. That's no less than 40 K. So that's my Goldilocks zone for above 40 K if some areas, you know, if you're in California, it might be 85K, you know, so you have to take it with a grain of salt. But if I'm in a normal neighborhood and that the city's good, but the median household income is like 28K of that micro neighborhood, I have no interest in that asset unless I look at that neighborhood and I go, oh, well, it's all retired people or it's all students. That explains why the median household income is is lower. So there could be a caveat. But the other thing I'm going to look at that corresponds very tightly with the median household income is the unemployment rate. So if the unemployment rate is higher than is more than 2% greater than the city's unemployment rate, which is easy to Google, like, you know, you can Google like Dallas unemployment rate and find out whatever it is right now. And then you can look, you're going to look at the micro neighborhood and find out what its unemployment rate is. If it's more than 2% higher, that is a bad sign as well. So you combine those two high unemployment, low median household income, no thank you. That results in high delinquency. People cannot afford to pay you your rent. So then you're gonna have that big gorilla on your back, which is bad debt. People living in your apartment can't afford to pay you, finally get evicted, never able to pay you the back rent they owe you, the thousands and thousands of dollars. So that's the bad debt that's collecting. And then you have to write off. And, and that is pure profit that's being written off. So you have to be really careful about how you select your market and your neighborhoods. Very, very critical.
1: That makes sense. And where are you going to get all this data?
0: So, so Neil teaches the class, the online course, using free sources, and so you don't have to pay for the course, nor the data, no upsell, nothing. I tell you, it's just free. He uses CityData.com, and then several websites. They're all free as well. What I use is because we have some paid services, and they provide more information than those, and they're quicker. I use local market monitor to look at markets and I use neighborhood scout to analyze my micro neighborhoods. So those are the two sources we use.
1: And how much are these tools for, are they subscription based or are they like,
0: they are subscription based. I don't know the cost of local market monitor. I have to tell you that neighborhood scout has subscription packages that I think like there's like $49 for 10 addresses a month, or you can do like $90 $90 for like 100 addresses a month, something like that. So it depends on how much you're underwriting and how many deals you're looking at. So I know the 10 wasn't enough for us. I was always exceeding it. I wish they had one that was like a 50 or something like that. But the micro-neighborhood is so critical. And so we turn away deals all day long. that people are like, are you kidding me? Like the returns are incredible on this deal. And I said, not interested. It does not meet our demographics. And we're super happy about that. That the deals that with the projects that we are in we've you know had thirteen projects since what was it September of 2018 when we started acquiring assets as Grow Capitus. we've closed on thirteen projects, almost two thousand units since that time. And here we are in Corona. it's June, middle of June, and you know our assets are doing really well, you know because we picked in good neighborhoods. There's a Forbes article that came out a couple maybe a couple of weeks ago. That was projecting the 10 best markets for post corona times that are going to recover the quickest, and the 10 worst markets that are going to take, you know, experience the most pain. Well, five of the top 10 markets are markets we're in, and we're not in any of the lower 10. And that's not by accident. That's because those markets had the fundamentals going into it. They were moving in the right directions already, they were tech focused, they were, you know, all the things. So we look at, you know, where are the jobs going? What types of jobs are going there? These are the markets we're going into. It's not just about having jobs. You don't, you want a diversity of jobs. You don't want a a place that is only, you know, government or is only one hospitality. Las Vegas got crushed by Corona, you know? So places that have a large diversity, that's going to end up being better for your renter's so that they are going to have the types of jobs that will sustain them. If they might lose one job, but then they can get another job because there's so many types of jobs within that metro. Do
1: you have any predictions of what markets are going to have a hard time recovering in the near future?
0: Las Vegas.
1: And it's mostly because they only like their primary source of income is through the entertainment industry.
0: Correct. There's so much about the service industry, that, you know, the gambling, casinos, and hospitality. That's been really hard hit by Corona that I think it's going to be hard for them to recover. There's places like Orlando that have Disney World, but they were more diversified than Las Vegas. And then I think Orlando is maybe Las Vegas should take a tip from Orlando because they're doing what the NBA, like they're bringing in the, the professional ball players to finish their season using the facilities of Disney World. So, I don't know if there's something Las Vegas can do to try to bring back some business. But yeah, I think those markets are going to be very hard hit.
1: Mm, I see. Yeah, I heard like New Orleans is also going to be very hard hit. Basically, anywhere that was like a destination to go to kind of got shut down.
0: Well, I don't know that that's true, I have to say. I mean, like I said, I'm in Charleston, South Carolina. And Charleston seems to be rebounding quite well. Now, Charleston has a very diversified economy. Don't get me wrong. I mean, besides, there's a lot of colleges there, but there's also a lot of tech companies there. And in fact, you know, it's a very desirable place to live. There's a lot of people leaving California and leaving these places, New York, for example, that are able to work remotely. And they are migrating to places like Charleston because the lifestyle is so much nicer there than if you couldn't be, like, I actually have a couple guys living in my upstairs unit, like, 30 over 30 day stay that are from New York. One's a lawyer, one's a banker. They couldn't tolerate being cooped up in New York anymore. So they're working remotely at my Airbnb in Charleston. But besides that, there's a lot of people migrating to places like that. So I don't know if New Orleans is going to have that type of a, a Charleston effect because it is a culturally, you know, the music scene and the art scene, it's a special place. So you might have people migrate there that want to live in that type of vibe. And then, but they're working. You know, wherever they're working remotely, right? I think a lot of us will be for a long time, and I hope New Orleans will be able to capitalize off of that.
1: Mm -hmm. Exactly. How are you seeing the, uh, I guess, investor sentiment right now? Are people interested in investing in multifamily real estate? Yes,
0: I would say that people that the investor mindset is still is is very good right now. People, of course, were as we all were. They were, you know, shocked at first. And so there was quite a bit of pullback. And that's when we started doing our town halls to bring education to people and really talk through issues, take live questions with expert panelists. And so we actually did a project in, uh, it was in May, and we sold out in no time. So it was a smaller project. We you know, specifically took on a smaller thing because we didn't want to take on something big. There was a little bit of resistance that I was sensing in the market at the beginning with investors. But I would say right now, and again, we're in mid-June, a lot of people are seeing that multifamily is a an extremely strong asset. People have to have a place to live. You look at the stock market, some people lost a lot, some people gained a lot, depending on whether they were in going down or in going up, Right. But I think it's perceived as a very risky place to be right now and a scary place to be where you could lose a lot of money. Nobody's lost money yet in multifamily.
1: Let's knock on word on that. Let's make sure that doesn't happen.
0: Well, people are paying their rent, you know, so we're going to see what happens, assuming let's say if unemployment stops after July, the, the extra unemployment, and there's no additional resources provided by the government if they're needed. We don't know. You know, it changes every day, Right. We will see how that impacts rents and if people are able to pay, but I can't imagine if, if people are unable to pay their rent, then that's not a good thing for the United States. So they would have to support it. Now, if you're unable to pay your rent and you're getting help from the government, that's one thing. But if you lose money in the stock market, the government's not going to help you. Like, so that asset is not protected or, you know. I guess it is protected in some regards because they are coming in and bailing out a lot of these people (laughs) with big buckets of money. So maybe it is protected. But my point is that you have to shelter in place somewhere. And it's very different from the 2008-2009 recession. We had a lot of people that moved home. And I'm not saying that's not happening in this recession. But in the apartment industry, we're seeing occupancy go up and lots of people moving in. And we've been wondering, like, why are all these, like, you know, our apartments are like 98% full. There's so many people, you have people that aren't moving for one thing, but then you have all these people looking to move in. And, you know, one thing I've been speculating about, I don't have hard evidence of it, but I do have a, you know, a lot of millennial age children that have a lot of friends in this era. And in 2008, 2009, if you lost your job or whatever, you could just go to your parents' basement, right? Like you could move in with your parents. Well, if you're going to do that now, you have to consider am I exposing my parents? Are they high risk? And I'm am I potentially exposing my parents to, you know, corona, like unnecessary risk? Because if your plan is that you're going to get a job, like, well, I'm going to just become a waiter or, or whatever, you know, whatever a person's going to do, they have to think about that. Like, well, my, you know, my dad's got asthma or my mom's got diabetes. And So I'm going to have to just find somebody to to roommate with because I can't expose my family to that. So I think it's a very different mindset than 2008, 2009. And maybe that's contributing to the occupancy staying so high at our apartment buildings.
1: I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Like uh, my girlfriend actually just moved in with me last week. There you go. I mean, one of the main reasons is because she lives with her parents and they are older and...
0: There you go, Sean.
1: You know, yeah, you don't don't want to risk, right? (laughs)
0: You are my first point of data as evidence, right? Exactly. It's a mindset. And then when you look at that mindset and you look apply it to multifamily and people needing a place to live, it really supports that. So more people than one might be moving into an apartment so that they can have lower rent that they have to pay themselves individually, but it, it does help the industry. So I believe that investors understand the intrinsic value of multifamily. And uh, we have quite a bit of strong interest these days.
1: That's great. Uh, have you had any issues with financing during this time?
0: Well, we are not. The projects that we are looking at and that we are in, we have not had financing issues with. So the type of financing that we are doing now, we've got some new construction projects going on that are getting to the point where we need construction loans. But based on the resume and the experience of the team and the connections to lenders in the market and the markets we're in that are highly desirable, we are getting great uh there's a lot of lenders that are very interested to to work with us but to your question the debt market is very challenging right now so you know fannie and freddie have these you know these draconian that they're putting on that you've got to have the reserves and all this extra money that they've got to put down which makes the deals kind of unworkable right now so we're not really looking at value adds so much we're looking at new construction because new construction with the right team especially like smaller projects you can turn that around, and you know the project can be out in like eighteen months to be getting cash flow twelve to eighteen months, and by that time there should be a vaccine, right? Let's hope so. Yeah, let's hope so, right? And in the meantime, it's not like people that are in value add assets. Most people are not distributing doing distributions of funds. Most syndicators are holding on to funds just to see if the other shoe is going to drop in July, August, September. So it's not like people that are investing in cash flow value adds are raking in money now. No one's making money right now. It's all being held off. So, it's a great time to consider if you've got experience in new construction, to invest in new construction, to actually do new construction. Because for some people, that's the issue. They say, Well, I'm not going to make any cash for 12 months. Well, you're not going to make any cash for 12 months in value add either, you know, because we're going to be holding on to capital preservation, is what we're focused on right now and making sure that we can get through this, which, like I said, knock on wood, it's looking good. So, in the construction industry, smaller projects seem to be getting better leverage. So if you're if you're trying to get huge projects going right now, that will be challenging. But smaller projects, lenders seem to have a better appetite for. And I will say the the most appetite that I've seen is for something that's like a residential. So say we have this project in Houston that we're building that's eight quadplexes. So it's 32 units, right? But they're individually parceled to be sold as quadplexes. So to the lender that's very low risk compared to a 32 unit, right? If it was, if we were building a 32 unit and we defaulted, then they have to sell a 32 unit, which still isn't very big. It's still not a very big risk. But imagine a lender looking at it and saying, if they default, I can sell off eight quadplexes. You know, there's so such a huge audience for that. So I would encourage people to think creatively and to have lots of exit strategies. That's what we're pursuing right now. We're looking at projects that, can be sold to in lots of different ways, like what I just mentioned, you know, quadplexes. We're in that same project in terms of handling debt and reducing debt. So here's what we were thinking when we were putting together the project. If we went the traditional way, we've got our new construction, our construction loan, right? What is the biggest risk for a real estate investor that's got renters? They don't pay. They don't pay their rent. And if you've got a mortgage to pay, then you're going to default on your loan, right? Mm -hmm. That's the biggest risk that we look at. So what we did on this University Oaks in Houston project that has the eight quadplexes is we said, of the eight quadplexes, we're going to sell three of the quadplexes right when we first build them, pay off the construction loan and own the other five quadplexes debt free. Nice. So that for the, so the investors coming into that deal, there's very low risk involved in it, you know, because it's basically going to be a debt. We've already actually already sold two of them, two of the quadplexes. It's 12 months from even building them. It's also in an opportunity zone, so people can come in and buy the quadplex and get the opportunity zone capital gains advantages. When you buy from the developer at the right time frame, you don't have to have, have created that value yourself. You're taking on the value that the developer made, and you qualify for your opportunity zone gains, for your opportunity zone tax advantages. So lots of ways to creatively look at things and put together deals. But in general, investors want to be protected from risk. And that's our job is to figure out in this new landscape that we're facing, how can we reduce risk?
1: How do you guys come up with that idea to create these four, eight boxes?
0: We're pretty crazy. We're just two crazy kids. No, uh, you know, it's creative. It's just creative thinking and working with really good partners. And again, you know, we look at a lot of deals and we turn away a lot of deals because we're all about mitigating risk. So just as you can imagine, we've talked about what we do on the demography side. We also look at deal structure very strategically and you have to be super strategic right now. So, you know, we want lots of exits. We want lots of, of exits in terms of time frame too. what happens if we sell in two years, what happens if we sell in five years, what happens if we have to hold for 10, you have to look at different scenarios right now that you didn't have to look at, you know, 18 months ago, a year ago, you could just say, Hey, five years and I'm out because it's going to work or it's, it's most likely going to work. Now you have to say, well, we don't know what's going to happen with the vaccine. We don't know how quickly the market's going to rebound. So we have to model it in several ways.
1: Yep. Having multiple exit strategies is always important as a real estate investor, whether you're flipping homes, doing buy and hold, or doing multifamily commercial real estate. That's right. Yeah. And can we talk about your role at GoCapitus? You focus mostly on asset management.
0: Well, that's one of the things I do. So I am the asset manager for the company. I also run the equity raises. I'm also the lead, the acquisitions of the company and basically the operations as well. So I am the asset manager for the company and uh, we have 13 projects going on right now. So in that role, I am responsible along with the partners on each of those projects. We have weekly meetings where we are analyzing the data from the previous week. And looking at the trends, we have very specific trackers that our property managers fill in that gives us, that produces charts and trend data and stuff that we need to look at. So the partners are looking at it each week. And then uh, we're looking at our financials, of course, every month and making decisions about how, what we need to focus on for that property, um, where things are going well, where things are not going well. Again, extremely data-centric. And then we meet with the property manager every week and have a one-hour call with them to guide them on you know, on what we want them to do, push them on this, pull them on that. But they are a team member, so we're firm but nice to them. <laughs> you can't just get a property manager and think that they're going to execute your business plan and sit back. So we are very, very involved, very hands-on to make sure that our business plan is being executed. And again, how do you know your business plan is being executed? Well, you need the data. So they have to fill out these trackers, and from those trackers, we're able to see where we're on track, where we're off track. And the beauty of that is it not only tells you where you're off track, but from your business plan, you may learn that you're off track, but you need to pivot, that you had an assumption in your original underwriting that isn't coming to fruition. There could be something about a particular unit. You thought that you'd be able to get a hundred dollar rent bump on your one bedroom, one bath, but the market is just not giving you that. And so because you've got data that you're looking at every, every week, the trends become very clear. So from that, then as partners, we can make decisions to pivot and say, hey, let's not renovate any more one-ones. What if we just keep them as classics and just go for the market rent bump that we're doing? Or maybe we do a hybrid. We do a, you know, instead of doing a premium, we do like a classic with a pop or something like that. So that, but again, you have to be tracking your data. If you're not tracking your data, you don't know what's going on, you
1: know? that makes a lot of sense. What are the data sheets that you are having your property managers fill out?
0: We have specific, you know, Excel sheets that we use them in Google, Google sheets that we've created that, you know, it's, it's not software that you buy. It's just stuff that we have created either individually or in collaboration with our partners. And those are the core things that the property managers fill out. Our property managers are spread across the United States and they all use different softwares. So the, the property management software is the big professional ones like Yardy and Appfolio. So if we were going to go in and look at the reports from each one of those, all of them are going to be different, and it's going to be really hard to, to create an apples and apples scenario for us as a company. But by having the property manager be responsible for populating our trackers with their data, now I've got apples and apples. So I've created you know an overlay that then I boil up into a dashboard. So we're able to look across our portfolio and understand what all the trends are.
1: So what are they populating?
0: It's as simple as, as a Google sheet. You know, it's, it's nothing that's that complicated.
1: Mm-hmm. And what are the parameters that they're inputting, like comparables, like rents? And...
0: Okay, so on a weekly basis, we've got our Monday morning report. And in that Monday morning report, there's a lot of data that's related to occupancy. So not only like, hey, what's the occupancy of the property right now? what's the physical occupancy, but we boil it down to like by unit type, who's moving in, who, you know, what units are moving in, what units are moving out, how many vacancies do we have on these, how many notices to vacate do we have coming up? So that's people that have told you they're gonna be moving out in the next 60 days. So those are upcoming rentals that you need to not only turn, but you need to now lease out, right? So lots of stuff related to that. We also track our marketing that brings in leads, okay? So when you have an apartment building, you have to advertise to get new tenants, to get prospective tenants. The property manager has a way to do that. They basically push a button in their app folio or their you know yardy and it pushes out some campaigns. But we take it to a whole different level. Again, a tech company, right? So we have a team that I manage called the Efficiency Center Team and they are an offshore team that creates campaigns for the property. And then they also handle the leads. So let me give you an example. We had this one property that the property manager was doing what they do, and they were generating roughly between 15 and 20 leads per week that would then, you know, a lead then comes and makes an appointment potentially with a property, and then they come and see the unit, and then it uh, results in an application and hopefully a lease, right? So 15 to 20. You can imagine you have to get a lot of leads to get a lease, right? Because just because you got a lead doesn't mean they even responded to you to set up an appointment, Right? So what we do is we 10X that with our efficiency center team. So that same once we turned on the efficiency center for that property, it went from 15 to 20 leads to over 180 leads in one week. And that was a consistent theme. Okay. There was so many leads coming in that the property manager couldn't handle it. And so we had to take the leads And do answer, you know, basically do all the follow up, the texting, the phone calls. We're now using Facebook Marketplace. We're using Facebook ads. So lots of different ways that we're interacting with tenants and bringing leads to our um, property. So what happens is we're stuffing the top of that funnel. So then a lot more are going to end up being shows. We actually booked the appointment for them to come and show up at the apartment building too. So our efficiency center works very closely with the property manager, and they actually enter the appointment directly into Appfolio or Yardy or whatever. And then it's just the leasing agent just has to do their job to meet that potential tenant, take them to the unit, show the unit, and sell it. We can't sell it; that's their job. They gotta, you know, they gotta do something there. So by having this service, and it's a very low cost service because it's, you know, it's the hourly wage for these people is much lower. And then it's the cost of their software and their phones, which tend to be very low. So it's an internal team. We don't outsource it or sell it to anybody else, but it adds extra value for our investors. And what happens then is we're driving up the value of our building. And how does that happen? Because we're driving up the occupancy. So a building that might've been writing around 92% occupancy without this turned on is now at 96, 97, 98% occupancy. And what happens when you're able to, not in Corona, these are different times right now, but let you know, once you have 98, 99% occupancy, what are you able to do? You're able to push your rents. You're able to increase rents. If you've got 98, 99% occupancy, what do we say in our industry? We say your rents are too low, push your rents. You know, So we're able to do that. That affects the, the bottom line, the net operating income of the property. And remember what I said earlier, The way you add value to your building is you increase your net operating income. Your net operating income is your income minus your expenses, right? That's your NOI. That NOI divided by the cap rate determines the value of your building. So by adding all of these leases to this building and adding all this occupancy, we're increasing the bottom line and increasing the value of the building. And we're doing it at a very low cost. The property pays for it, the service. There's no additional money we charge on top of it. That's just part of us being you know, asset managers and good partners. And again, using our tech savvy because we have some technical know-how in our company and we love to use it.
1: That's amazing. I love hearing how everything that you guys have is pretty streamlined and you have all these systems in place so that things get done and not just front on the back burner.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, like I said, We are total system geeks and data nerds. And I think that's where Neil and I excel together. I'm also quite the task master. I get shizzle done. And that's why we've got 13 projects that we've completed in such a short time.
1: Yeah, I love it. Is your property management team basically in charge of making sure all the operations are done correctly? Like if you guys are doing a rehab or some construction, they're the ones that are managing that?
0: That's a great question. So different properties have different setups. So for some of the properties... The rehab is done in-house, so it's your you know your maintenance guys that are doing it. And then for other properties, we might be trying to do a whole bunch, you know, a lot of them at one time, and it's too many for the internal rehab team to handle, so we have an outside contractor. So that goes back to your underwriting plan. How many units did your underwriting plan say you needed to turn a month in order to get the rent bumps in order to execute your business plan? Well, that right there, your original plan is going to tell you, like, I've got to turn five units a month, or I've got to turn eight units a month. And then you go and you see, well, can my team handle that? You know, eight units a month is a lot, unless you've got a really big property, that's a lot for your internal team to turn. Mm-hmm. So you may have to go to an external team, but you, you know, you might get economies of scale there, right? It depends. We've got a mix. Some of them are internal teams. Some of them are external teams.
1: Yeah. So I have a quick question for you. You were mentioning that, you know, you all these systems in place, and you're able to, let's say, get occupancy really, really high. And let's say, just for theoretical sake, you have 100% occupancy. You guys are running this ship really smoothly, and it's doing really well. And by doing that, you have increased the value of the property because NOI is up. When the next buyer goes to you and wants to purchase your property, don't most buyers discount that? They say, oh, 100%, that's unrealistic. We're going to only give you 95%. How do you counter that and say, no, I'm actually running my property very efficiently
0: as somebody looking at a property if you're consistently showing high occupancy then you're proving your point with your income your profit and loss statement your income statement you've got 12 months of data that they can see i think it's suspicious if you're running at you know 88% and then suddenly you're at 100% for just a couple months then people think you're stuffing you're stuffing your building to try and sell it but when you have a track record of high occupancy I don't think people can dispute that. They go, wow, this is a well-run building. They will also will look at the market vacancy and what the comps around it are. So they might see that the market comps are you know, 95 or 96% or maybe they're 92%. But me as an underwriter looking at a, a building this first of all, I'm going to look at the rents and go, well, they're, they, maybe they're at 98 99% because they're way under market. And that's why if I look at the rents and I go like, no, they're not under market. They're on market. They're just really good at their job. <laughs> That's what I would say. You know, that's what the the conclusion I would come to. If the market, if the rents are at the right rate and, you know, they have a track record of doing it month after month, I'd say they're doing a good job.
1: So in that case, there would be no need to discount that and you could kind of just take their values.
0: No, we wouldn't discount it. We would laugh if somebody was asking us about that, you know, Hmm. but here's the thing. We would like to be, you know, more like 94, 95, 96%, like 95, 96 we would like to push our rents. If you're at one, you know, 99, 100, you need to push your rents. You need to turn units faster. So so that, you know, it's just Corona is a different time right now, right? Right. So we do have one property that's in Dalton, Georgia, that pretty much stays 99% occupied because people just don't like to leave that place. They just love living there. So that's like a different problem. Like we can't get people to leave. So it's hard for us to turn units fast enough there. But one thing we're doing with that property is when we bought it, there was the previous owner, there was a building that burnt down at that property. And the owner sold it to us. Of course they, you know, the, the insurance was all paid out. He took the check and scraped off the building and, and left, right? But he sold it to us at a hundred the price we would pay for the lower amount of units. He didn't include any upsell to us for the opportunity to build. And that gave us a great advantage. We have new construction experience, so we're not scared of it. So we're now building, it was 20 units that burnt down with like, I think it had like five storage units in it. We're rebuilding 29 units with 20 self-storage. So we're adding tremendous value to that property. So we saw that people don't like to leave that property, right? So that's kind of a problem. So we're like, we let it prove its point first. And now we're like, this market, they love this place. So yeah, we're going to bite the bullet and build these 29 units. So
1: we're in the middle of doing that right now. Amazing. Well, Anna, thank you so much for sharing all this information with us today. Do you have any last tips for our listeners before we end our show?
0: Yeah. I mean, I'd say this is a great time. If you're looking to get into multifamily now or real estate in general, now you have a huge advantage because the market will be turning to some extent. We've been at the top of market for a long time and it's been very challenging that the juice has kind of been squeezed out of a lot of deals. It was very hard to find deals We project that in a few months, there's going to be a lot more deals around. Maybe, I don't know if it's two months. I don't know if it's four months. We don't know how long they're going to stay around. But that is an opportunity for you. And what you can be doing in the meantime is educating yourself, uh, practicing underwriting, starting to meet up with other groups. If you're looking to get into multifamily, start trying to build teams of people. Pick your market. You You can't travel to the market necessarily right now. But there's a lot that you can do. And just understand that you actually are in a very good situation compared to people that were starting six months ago.
1: Yeah, awesome. And how can people get in contact with you?
0: You can find me. I I do a lot of hosting and co-hosting of webinars at multifamilyu.com. So you can come join us and ask lots of great questions. Or you can find me at growcapitus.com. So Anna at growcapitus.com. That's G-R-O-C-A-P-I-T-U-S.com. I'm also on Facebook as well as LinkedIn. Although I have to tell you, if you're interacting with me on Facebook, it might be one of our virtual assistants that you're actually interacting with because we've got quite the virtual army to keep the plates spinning.
1: Awesome. Well, Anna, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Here are some of the key takeaways from this episode. The Burr strategy works, but it can be a very slow process. One of the main downsides is that you don't have control over the final value of the property. But with multifamily, you're able to increase the value of the property by increasing the net operating income that it produces. Anna loves using data to make investment decisions. So if you're wondering where and what to invest in, learn how to analyze data yourself or check out the Grow Capitalist webinars where Neil and Anna go over the different market trends. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, Join our meetup group, where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at Sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.